We've been traveling through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've been here with us, you know that. And if you haven't and you want to catch up, you can also look back at our podcast and things on Apple Podcasts in order to get caught up. But in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth, a church that he founded, a church that he loves. And we're coming to the very end of the book. We only have this week and next week, and we're done with 1 Corinthians. So we're right around the corner. And at the very end, he looks forward and he gives the Corinthian church an explanation of what the Christian hope is. What is the Christian hope? At the close of the book and at the close of our lives, what do we have to look forward to? What truly is the Christian hope? Because what we believe about the future affects how we live today. When my brother was, my brother's five years older than me, so when my brother's right around five years old, I wasn't really around yet, um, he was leaving Chuck E. Cheese well, when we lived in Northern California with my family. And he goes out and he goes running into the parking lot. And my mom goes, no, stop, come back. And he turns around and says, it's okay, mom. I'm not going to die until I'm at least 16 and keeps running out into the parking lot. <laughs> he was so confident of his future, <laughs> so confident that he was not going to die until he was at least 16, that he felt like a car couldn't even touch him. Because what we believe about the future affects how we live today. And so Paul gives us the probably the most important explanation of the Christian hope in the entire Bible. And this is one of those passages that as like a teacher who's a young teacher who's still like figuring things out that you come to and you just know that like you're not worthy to talk about <laughs> because of how transformative and how essential this chapter is. And what we're going to see is Paul first gives us an explanation of our future hope and then he bases that future hope then on past evidence, which then leads us to our current decision. So that's where we're going. First, what is our future hope? Look with me at verse 35, chapter 15, verse 35. Our future hope can be summarized in one word, and that is resurrection. That is resurrection. And it says in verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? Verse 36, you foolish person, what, do you, what you sow does not come to life unless it does. And, how you, how, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind a seed of its own body. So he says first, that the resurrection, the hope that you and I have as Christians is that we will receive a new body. A body that is totally and completely new and glorified. And he gives this example of a seed. A seed, um, last year during COVID, when everything was going crazy, I thought, I'm going to make a garden. And so I bought some seeds, and, <laughs> and I went out to my backyard, and because I was going to save my family in case everything went terribly. And <laughs> so I go and I plant this seed in the ground, and it's really just a bare kernel. There's nothing really of substance or of life or of value in this bare seed. But when it goes into the ground, something happens, it dies, it changes. And what comes out is something totally new, totally transformative, totally better than the bare seed that went down into the ground. It's still the seed in some senses. 
it came from the seed it is part of the seed it's still the seed there's still a continuity there it's not like i put a seed into the ground uh, like an apple seed and then out comes a peach tree it's not something completely different it's still the same seed but it's way more glorious way more transformative and there's so much more life there and the new body that we will get in heaven there is continuity in the fact that it's human we will be human for all time it's not like all of a sudden once we get to heaven we're going to become disembodied spirits floating around in the clouds that's not the christian hope the christian hope is a resurrection of a new body that is our body it's way better but it's still connected it's still human it is a glorified body and this body well, one thing to keep in mind is it's resurrection not resuscitation so when, when we think about the new kind of body and how it's the same body it's not our current body is resuscitated it's being going through death into a new kind of life it's not going backwards into the old kind of life it's not resuscitation it's a resurrection into a new kind of life and the example that we have is the example of jesus jesus it says that he is the first fruits here in this passage if you look at verse 20 through 23 of chapter 15 it says but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep the first fruits is an agricultural term meaning that he was the first ones to spring up he was the first life to to come out of the ground first one of many more for as by man came death by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ, he's the first fruits. He's the first person. So if we want to know what a resurrected body will be like when we get to heaven, we look at Jesus' resurrected body. And when we look at Jesus' resurrected body, there is a sense in which there's a continuity. When he comes and says, I'm Jesus, people aren't like, no, you're not. They recognize him. So it is his body. But it's not resuscitation. It's not like he's barely hanging on to life, like he just got out of the tomb because it's the same body. It's a resurrected new kind of life. And it says in Luke chapter 29 that, um, I believe it's Luke chapter 29. I think I have it on here somewhere. Um, yeah, Luke 24, 39. That's what it is. Luke 24, 39. It's after the resurrection and he comes and he meets with his disciples and the disciples are like, whoa, it's Jesus. He's alive. And, and they're kind of freaking out because they think it might be a ghost. And he says, bring me some fish. And they bring him some fish and, and he eats it. And he says, ghosts do not have flesh and bone as you see I have. And he says, to touch me, handle me. He, he goes to Thomas and says, put your hand in my side. It's an actual physical real body that he eats food. It's not some sort of disembodied spirit. It's an actually a glorified new kind of body. And along with that, the Christian hope is not just a new kind of body, which we can all rejoice for and be, anticipate, but also it is a new creation. New body and a new creation. Look with me back at chapter 15. We're going to read verses 38 through 41 where it says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. 
There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another the glory of the moon, for another, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So here he goes through a list of all these birds, these animals, and all these kinds of things, and you're kind of, I was like, what's going on here? But I read a commentary, and they help a lot. And what they said was this actually references back to the book of Genesis chapter 1. If you remember the book of Genesis chapter 1, there are the days of creation, and when God is creating the world, he goes through the days of creation, and how on on day 1, there there was light was created, and he goes through all the days, And, and what Paul does is he goes back in reverse order of the days, where he says, humans, they were created last, but they're listed first here, and then animals, then they were created, and then birds, those were created, another fish, and he's going up reverse order of the Genesis chapter 1 account. What does this mean? This means that not only do we have a new body coming, we have a new creation. The entire world will be recreated. And that happens because we receive new life. We are resurrected. In the book of Romans chapter 8, It says, for all creation waits in eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. When you and I, when we are revealed, when we become what we were meant to be, all creation will be reborn. It says, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All creation is waiting with eager expectation for us to receive our resurrected bodies so that we then can be, they can be made new, they can become a new creation, and we see that in the book of Revelation chapter 22. The last few days I've been watching National Geographic on Disney Plus, because I was just watching it. Uh, I was watching, you know, like some of the like planet Earth type things, and this world, everyone all of the animals are just trying to eat each other. <laughs> like, legitimately, they're just out there trying to eat each other. And it's so gnarly. And what the Bible shows as the Christian hope is not just an individual new body, but a new creation where the lion will lay down with the lamb. That the child can stick his hand in a snake pit without fear of being harmed. That there's a relationship both between the animals that is made right and a relationship between humans and the created world that is made whole and made right. It's totally reborn and it's exactly the way it was meant to be. But not only that, not only do we receive a new body and not only is there going to be a new creation, but there's also going to be a new society. Look with me at verses 24 through 28. Verse 24 through 28. It says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things into subjection under him, that God may be all in all. A lot of subjection going on there. (laughs) What that's saying is, is God's kingdom 
comes in its fullness and Jesus Christ reigns. No more crazy governments. No more corrupt leaders. No more oppressive systems. Instead, total and complete unity in society because the king is reigning and the king is good. And he is kind and he is just. And it is a new society that we get to be a part of. And the beautiful thing about this new society is in there, there was some like subjection that will happen and subjection that is happening now. It's talking about the already and the not yet of the kingdom. It's the fancy word is inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated is when something is crowned. It's when something is enacted, but it's, it's still being played out. It's the very start. And so what the kingdom of God is biblically is it started when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The kingdom of God has begun, but it's not yet in its fullness until he comes back and rules and reigns. And we now live in between the already and the not yet of the kingdom. And in that in-between, when the new society will come in its fullness, we get to prefigure and participate in the future fulfillment that will come. N.T. Wright, who's an incredible Anglican scholar, he puts it this way when talking about the Christian hope and the inaugurated eschatology, the already and not yet of the kingdom. He said, rather, it is a new way of being human, the Jesus-shaped way of being human, the cross and resurrection way of life, the spirit-led pathway. It is the way which anticipates in the present the full, rich, glad human existence, which will one day be ours when God makes all things new. That's what our Christian life is now. It anticipates, it prefigures that day when all things are made new. But not only that, the Christian hope is not just a new body, not just a new creation, not just a new society, but it's at the undoing of death and evil. Look with me back at verse 54. When the perishable puts on imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, the ultimate enemy of of all things good. Death, the ultimate expression of all evil. It will be swallowed up in victory. When we swallow something, when you take, take a bite of food and you swallow it, it comes inside of you, it's disintegrated and then becomes a part of you. So when you think about death being swallowed up in victory, it means that death All evil, all suffering, death, the culmination of all of that, all sin, it's swallowed up in victory, which means it unknowingly and unwillingly contributes to the good. That's what Romans 8.28 is really saying. Romans 8.28 says all things work together for the good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That means every single evil, terrible thing in this world is unknowingly and unwillingly going to be contributing to the good. That's how death is swallowed up. That's the true undoing and reversal. That's what resurrection means, is that even though it might be terrible now, it's going to be undone, it's going to be reversed, and end up contributing to the good. That's the Christian hope. That is what we, as Christians, believe and look forward to and anticipate. A new body, a new creation, a new society, and every single wrong will be made right. All right, that sounds great. That's neat, cool. Is it true? 
That might be our future hope, but is it actually true? Will that actually happen? And that's why Paul then goes back to past evidence. Past evidence. Because if this isn't true, Paul says that our faith is futile. Our our faith means nothing. If the resurrection isn't real, let's just all go home. (laughs) Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, is what he says. That is how important this is. So we need to have good evidence to believe it. Because the entire Christian faith hangs in the balance. So he goes back to past evidence. Look with me back in verse 3. It says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is another word for Peter, the, the disciple, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The historicity of the resurrection is one of the most important questions that we can ask. And the first thing Paul points to are eyewitnesses. He goes through a list. Did you notice? It was like Cephas, James, me, 500 people. All these people, they saw the resurrected Lord. All the apostles, they saw Jesus after he had died in his glorified body. And he is writing this in the year AD 50, which is a little over 8055, sorry. And it's, so that's 22 years after Jesus died, buried, and was risen again. 22 years after, he's saying, most of these people are still alive. Go talk to them. Go talk to them and ask them, did they really see Jesus or were they hallucinating? What was going on? Go and ask them. And this would have been read publicly. He's literally challenging his readers, saying, go out and figure this out for yourself. Go talk to the people. Go talk to the eyewitnesses. And one of the primary critiques of Christianity and the Gospels is that people say these, were, these stories and these legends, they were written way after the life of Jesus. And so it was just legends that were passed down and passed down. It was like a game of telephone. You can't even recognize it at the very end. The historical reality couldn't be further from that. The historical reality is that within 20 years, there were hundreds of witnesses to the resurrection, and they were saying, come and talk to me. And in fact, I'm willing to die for it. The eyewitness accounts within 23 years of the event itself. It's not hundreds of years for legends to be able to develop. But not only that, um, I'm going to go through a couple different things that help contribute to the historicity of the resurrection. Not only that, there's the, the tomb was empty. Yeah, you could have eyewitness accounts, but if the tomb wasn't empty, then no one would think he's actually resurrected. Because you could go to the tomb and say, there he is. Or, if the tomb was empty and there were no eyewitnesses, no eyewitnesses saying, I saw Jesus resurrected, no one would have thought that he resurrected. Those two things together, the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts, come together to give a powerful argument for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus. And not only that, then, so those two things coupled together, but then in the gospel accounts, 
In every single one of the Gospels, the first people to see Jesus resurrected are women. And in our day and age, that doesn't really stand out. But at that time, it would have stuck out like a sore thumb because women's, um, the, uh, in court, their, what is the court testimony? Their testimony in court would not be considered valid. It wouldn't even be considered valid in court. And so the New Testament authors would have been under incredible pressure to edit that out and be like, no, men saw him first because that's a credible witness. But the New Testament authors, they keep that in. Why? Because it's history. Then on top of that, so some, some people look back at the New Testament time and say, oh, well, they were just really superstitious. They were probably looking for something like this, so they invented it. We in the modern era, we don't think like that anymore. That was just them. They were being really superstitious. But when you go back to that culture, none of the cultures in that area would have been expecting a resurrection in this way. The Greco-Roman culture, their afterlife was freedom from the physical body into a spiritual existence. So a resurrection was not only looked for, it wasn't even desirable. Then when you go to the Jewish culture, they were looking for a resurrection of everybody all at the same time in the kingdom of God, not a single resurrection in the middle of history. So if a Jewish person would have gone to another Jew and said, the resurrection happened, they would say, no, it's not. We're all still here. Neither the Jewish nor the Greco-Roman culture would have ever considered a single resurrection in the middle of history. So it didn't just come up out of their superstition. In other words, it would only have to come, it only would have come up out of fact. And then finally, one of the more powerful ones for me is the fact that the apostles were willing to die for this. If it was a conspiracy, if they all knew it was a lie, then they would not have died in order to be able to maintain it. Instead, they were saying, I'm just a witness to the truth. This is a historical reality that I cannot deny. And there's a lot of resources that go along with the historicity of the resurrection. There's one book by N.T. Wright, who I referenced earlier, called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's over 700 pages. I haven't read it. <laughs> but it's over 700 pages of scholarly historical work analyzing whether or not the resurrection of Jesus was legitimate. And here's a quote from that passage. It says, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion of experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt. No matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. The best explanation for the rise of the church is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Think about that for a sec. Like legitimately, God came and became a man. He died on the cross and was risen again into a new kind of life. He is actually risen again. That's the best historical explanation, which means then we can have that new abundant life that I was talking about in the kingdom of God with a new body, a new creation, new society, and all evil is going to be undone because of what Jesus has accomplished in the resurrection. That's the best example, and that is one of the most crazy things of all time. 
legitimately the most crazy thing of all time. <laughs> he was resurrected. And that leads us to then our current decision. That's our future life. That's the past evidence. Our current decision here today. If that's true, that Jesus was really resurrected from the dead, our lives cannot stay the same. We cannot just keep going along. It, 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 it can't. Jesus was really resurrected from the dead. That leads us to a, a decision. It leads us to a decision today. Because if Jesus truly is resurrected from the dead, everything changes. And the reality is, is that in order for us to truly be a part of that new abundant life that I was talking about, if that's something that we want to be a part of, that we want to see evil undone, a society made whole, a creation redeemed, and our bodies made new, if we truly do want that, all it takes is for us to believe. All it takes is for us to believe. And God in His grace has given us incredible resources to make that belief more than reasonable. And when we believe in him, when we confess our faith in him, the Bible says that to confess our sins and to repent. Repent means to change direction. It means I was going this way, now something completely different. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, something has to change. And we repent and we switch directions, and that belief manifests itself in now living a life for Jesus where now we are living totally and completely for him because everything has changed. God has come down. The kingdom is coming back. Everything has changed. And so now we're living for him. Now we're no longer living for ourselves, it says in 2 Corinthians, but instead we live for him who died for us. And this direction, this switch, is costly. I was, as I was thinking and setting over this, it was, it was convicting to me that if I truly believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, that truly does change everything. And belief in him isn't something that is on the back burner, isn't something that is secondary, but instead it truly changes everything and it's costly. It costs us our lives. It, Paul says here that I die daily. That belief that we have expresses itself in a death. Jesus says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It means through faith we participate in the death of Jesus, where we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us. And when I think about this, I often think about the, a guy named Jim Elliott, who he was a young man when he went to go be a missionary in Ecuador, and he went to go reach an unreached people group, and they were a stone age with spears and everything, and him and his five buddies, they all went and made contact, and they, they were starting to communicate with them, and then at, at the end, after just a couple days, they ended up getting martyred and speared to death. And in the subsequent months, a couple friends came down to go visit the spot. And one friend had flown the plane over and already seen it, and so he was taking the other friend. And, and the pilot was showing his, his friend that's the place where Jim Elliot died. And, and their friend says, no, that's not the place where Jim Elliot died. And the guy was like, yeah, I, I actually helped 
grab the bodies, and that's the place where he died. He said, no, that's not the place where he died. I was with him when he died, 10 years earlier, in our, our little church. That was the day that he died. That was the day when he said, no longer my life is my own. It doesn't matter what it costs me. It doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is. It doesn't matter. Jesus is resurrected. He's the true one. My life is no longer my own. My life is now dead. It's now only his. That's the cost of following Jesus. Our lives are no longer our own. And you might be saying, Stephen, that's scary. Yeah, it's been really convicting to me those last couple days. Because I look at my own life, I'm like, what? Am, am I truly living this? And I truly believe that the Lord has brought each one of you here for a reason. And that this group has started in the most unnatural spiritual way. Like, it's crazy how we're all here right now. Because I, I truly believe that the Lord... The Lord wants for us not to just go be missionaries or something like that, maybe, but the Lord wants us to die to ourselves. However that looks in our individual lives, where our lives are no longer our own, but we instead are completely and totally submitted to Him, living for Him, living a different kind of life, where it's no longer our own priorities, it's no longer our own perspectives, it's instead living totally for Him. And that seems crazy and scary. How do we find the courage to live that kind of life? The best example of this that I've found um, is in the book, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Because <laughs> I'm a nerd and I read things like that. In, at the end of that book, what happens is, is there's a guy named Charles Darnay and he is unjustly convicted and sentenced to the guillotine in the French Revolution, even though he did nothing wrong. He was a great man, and he's going to be sentenced to death. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> yep. If you're going to read it, you've had over 100 years. So <laughs> at the end, he's going to get sent to the guillotine in the French Revolution. But there's a friend, Sidney Carton, Sidney Carton, he had so much potential, but he never realized it. He was a drunkard, he was kind of like a lowlife, and he, had, he was a brilliantly smart lawyer, but he never truly made it. And But he, he had an intense love for him and his family. Charles Darnay, the one who was uh, convicted, he, was, he has a wife and a kid, and, and he had intense love for them. And so the, the night before his execution, Sidney Carton... He sneaks in with, with a friend, and he, he knocks Charles Darnay out and gets him to be drug out, and he switches places with him in, in the prison. He switches places because they kind of look alike. They're the same height, and, and they, they look similar. And so he switches places with them, and, and the next morning, he, uh, a young girl who was also convicted to be sent to the, to the guillotine is there, and he starts, she starts talking to um, Carton, and in the conversation she realizes this is a different person. This isn't the same guy. And, and she's afraid and she says, good brave sir, can I hold your hand? 
And he says, to the end. And so they're loaded up into carts and are taken to the guillotine. And on their way there, the young girl says, says to him, Carton, but for you, dear stranger, I should not be so composed, for I am naturally a poor little thing, faint of heart. Nor should I have been able to raise my thoughts to him who was put to death that we might have hope and comfort here today. I think you were sent to me by heaven, Sidney Carton says, or you to me. Keep your eyes on me, dear child, and mind no other object. The fact that Carton was willing to die for someone else gave her courage, gave her the composure, gave her the ability. He wasn't even dying for her. He was dying for someone else, a whole other family. But that gave her the courage to be able to face the guillotine. And Charles Dickens, he was a Christian. And this is obviously a picture of what Jesus has done, where he switched places for us. He switched places so that way the guillotine would fall on him and we could go free. And because he has done that for us, he says, look, look at me. Don't mind anything else. Don't mind any other object. Fix your eyes on me. I am the one who is going to die for you. And that gives us the strength. That gives us the courage to be able to face death ourselves. To be able to say, you know, my life is no longer my own because he died for me. He was willing to be able to do that. That gives me the courage. That gives me the composure. It's because of what Jesus has done. That gives us the, the, the ability to be able to live our lives for him. Because he switched places for us. And now we don't mind any other object, but instead fix our eyes on him. And we see the work that he has done in dying on the cross for us, switching places with us. So my heart for us, I'm, I'm done. And so the worship team can come out. My heart for us is that we would truly recognize the hope that we have, the future hope of a new society, creation, a new humanity. But that we would believe, not a belief that is naive, a belief that's based on historical evidence, a rational, real faith. And that that belief would boil over into a decision to follow, a decision to die to ourselves, Take up our cross and follow him because our life is no longer our own. Don't mind any other object. Don't mind all the other things around you. Fix our eyes on Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to focus on you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you switched places with us so that way we can truly live for you. You died that we might live. Thank you for the hope that we have. And we pray this in your name. Amen.